Please be seated. We are called to worship God for many blessings that God has given us, and indeed for our very lives. Please join me in the corporate prayer of adoration and wholeness, followed by a period of silence. Let us pray. Giver of all good gifts, you invite us to follow your example. When we give gladly, we feel your love flowing through us and are thankful. When we give reluctantly or not at all, we feel empty or lifeless. Forgive these moments and renew our hearts that may again know the joy of giving. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. No matter what our failings may be, we know that God offers us forgiveness, grace, and love. Let us now claim that assurance of forgiveness. When we feel inadequate, you sing us a song of wholeness. When our gifts don't seem to make a dent in the world's needs, you remind us that joined with those of others, they do make a difference. Rejoice in the truth. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven and freed to give abundantly. Alleluia. Amen. Our reading today is from the Hebrew Scriptures, the Book of Psalms, chapter 98, verses 1a from 498. If you would like to follow along the text, you will find it printed in your bulletin insert. In preparation to hear these words, let us pray. Spirit of the living presence, open our minds and hearts to the reading and hearing of these ancient words, and that we might be attentive to your word for us today. In the name of the risen one, we pray, amen. O sing to God a new song, for the Holy One has done marvelous things. Make a joyful noise all the earth, break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to Yahweh with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with the trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the Holy One. <coughs> Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who live in it. Let the floods clap their hands. Let the hills sing together for joy at the presence of Yahweh. <coughs> Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Our second reading today is from the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 25, verses 35 to 40. If you would like to follow along with the text, you will find it printed in your bulletin insert. Hear now these words. <clears throat> For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Rabbi, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick 
or in prison and visit you? And he will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. Here ends the second lesson. Several of our community have already written or spoken about their stories of learning to give from their families as part of our stewardship campaign. I too want to share a story about my family. I come from a large extended family. My mother was one of seven children and my father was one of six. We lived several hours away from both clans, but our Christmases were always spent with my mother's family and Thanksgiving with my father's. Our vacations were always spent visiting both. How I longed to go to Myrtle Beach or Disney World on our vacations like other families. But of course, as an adult, I realized the wonderful gift of connection that my parents passed along to me. Some of you listened to my remembrances of my Aunt Sue, who died this summer at the age of 86. She married a man from the small rural community in Middle Tennessee where she grew up. They lived all but the last 65 years of married, their married lives in the same house, raising five children and running a grocery store together. Although she was seven years younger than my father, she was the oldest of his three sisters and functioned as the family matriarch for the past 40 years, a role that she willingly took on after my grandparents' death. She was the person who made sure that our extended family continued to get together for Thanksgiving for the 4th of July, had an Easter egg hunt. She made the phone calls to set the date, coordinate the food. She always sent birthday cards, not just to me, of course, but to my 20 cousins, their spouses, and as the next generation came along, to her grandchildren and grandnieces and nephews. I hadn't been particularly close to her as a child. I was just one of the 20 or so gang of children running around when I was growing up. But she took on a larger role in my life after my parents died. When I returned to Tennessee to visit my sister and her family, I always went to see Aunt Sue and my father's other two living siblings, Michael Felbert and my Aunt Wanda. At first I arranged these largely out of a sense of duty, but over the years I came to cherish the special time I had to get to know them as an adult. The visits always had a predictable routine. Aunt Sue always cooked lunch and we sat around talking and remembering, and I always left with a loaf of her wonderful homemade bread. She also extended the sense of remembering to everyone. She was known for sending cards or notes. If she saw you graduated from anything, had a good turn in a ball game, got a promotion, or had lost someone. She was the person who cooked food if you were sick or grieving. She was known to drop off a bag of produce from her garden or an orchid that she got at the farmer's market to the young and probably woefully underpaid pastor in their small rural church. She was also famous for her homemade candy at Christmas. She and her four daughters made literally hundreds of boxes every year to give out to family and friends. A few years ago, I caught the flu about a week before Christmas and wasn't able to go to Tennessee for the holidays. Around New Year's, I got a box for her in the mail. I knew there was candy inside, and although I felt much better by then, I wasn't up to stuffing myself with homemade fudge yet. So I decided to show some willpower and not open the box for a week. That lasted until the next morning. I opened the box and there was candy and two loaves of her homemade bread. I thanked my lucky stars that I hadn't been strong and allowed that beautiful bread to spoil. 
I also said a silent thanks for her ability to model that people are held together through these gestures and rituals. It's hard to ac accurately describe the weight of her influence through small but generous acts over a lifetime. I'm sure she would want me to tell you that she wasn't a paragon of virtue. She was famously judgmental and didn't think twice about telling you exactly what she thought. My uncle died in May, and as often happens with long married couples, Aunt Sue was diagnosed with cancer two months later. She made peace with this in about two minutes, and then proceeded to shepherd all of her family through her passing. She only lived about 10 days after her diagnosis, but during that short time she continued to give. I was able to go and spend several days with her in her hospice room, where all of her five children shared this time grandchildren and great-grandchildren coming when they could, people from the different facets of her life coming to say goodbye. We shared stories. We heard for the first time how she had met my uncle. We assured her and ourselves that her traditions would continue, the candy making, the remembering where we came from, and that we stood on the shoulders of others. My cousins and I looked at each other and realized that this was a transition of responsibilities. We were now going to be Aunt Sue. One of the things that drew me to 7th Avenue was that it reminded me of an extended family. It's about the size of my large family. <laughs> different people with different talents, different views, different temperaments. As individuals in this congregation, we move in and out of connection depending on where we are in our life journey. We have many Aunt Sue's, both women and men who are willing and able to give a great deal of themselves. We have those of us who show up and provide the critical mass needed for community. We have beautiful children who bring us joy just by being here. We share rituals and rites of passages. We know some members of this family better than others, but know that we can depend on each other if needed. This community provides a sense of belonging. This isn't meant as a self-congratulatory observation, but reminds me that as things change in the world, that this community grounds us and helps us to choose love, as Scott Quinn so beautifully spoke to us about last week, and helps us to live out this power of love. So although I'm a native San Franciscan, uh, my parents are both from the Midwest. And so my upbringing has imbued me with a healthy dose of Midwestern stoicism. So at first, when I was asked to talk about how I learned to give, I was, I was actually a little puzzled. Uh, in the culture I was raised, it was absolutely not a question that if you were part of a community, you gave back to it. And not only that, but you made sure you were doing it quietly and without fanfare. From this perspective, talking about giving is a little uncomfortable because there's nothing worse to a Midwesterner than even the faintest appearance of boasting, <laughs> even if it's about your good deeds. Some of my earliest memories of giving was watching my father sitting at his desk, dutifully allocating his yearly charity budget to among the many causes that he cared about, including his church. While I have profound respect for this mentality, it doesn't really make for an inspirational story. <laughs> You ask me about giving, just do it. And please, let's not talk about this again. It's embarrassing. <laughs> so 
So in order to find a story about giving that wasn't just about duty and obligation, I had to really dig deep into one of my earliest childhood memories. And ironically, this story centers around Christmas, uh, which although we call it the season of giving, uh, for children is really normally this season of getting. Um, but much like my son, um, who you're getting to know, um, I was an acquisitive child. Um, and when I was about his age, it had somehow gotten into my head that the two fairy Easter Bunny and Santa Claus stories didn't really make a lot of sense. So I pressed my mother on this, and she made the mistake of conceding that the two fairy was not real. But she wouldn't give in on Santa Claus. After that, though, she made another mistake of leaving me alone with my father. He was a much easier mark than my mother, <laughs> and I was able to press him until the entire edifice crumbled. What happened next was surprising. While I was naturally disappointed at first, instead of giving into despair, my mood suddenly turned into excitement. I came back to my parents and I said, if Santa Claus is not real, then I want to be Santa Claus. <laughs> and so my mother scoured the thrift shops in San Francisco to find me a ragtag Santa costume. Oversized red robe, check. Kid-sized scratchy white beard, check. Black boots, check. And of course, to complete the ensemble, the famous Santa Claus hat. That Christmas Eve, after waiting with bated breath for my sister to fall asleep, I rushed to my room to put on my Santa outfit. I joyfully helped my parents to distribute Santa's Christmas presents under the tree and in the stocking. I don't think that I was ever as excited to wake up on Christmas morning to see my sister receive those gifts from Santa Claus. I continued doing this for several years. And I resisted the temptation to tell my sister or any of my friends. Since I had transitioned to the giving side of the Santa equation, I couldn't imagine spoiling the joy of receiving for others. So why am I telling you this? Looking back on this story, I think that somehow in my little kid brain, the whole Santa Claus narrative flipped. I stopped seeing Santa Claus as this mystical creature sent to Earth to make me feel special but rather as an opportunity to give without receiving credit. And perhaps since I was too young to have been indoctrinated into Midwest Stoicism, rather than seeing this as a solemn obligation, I saw it as a wonderful opportunity to fe truly feel the joy of giving. Today, I have to admit that I'm probably more my dad, sitting quiet my, quietly at my desk, this time now with a laptop, liking and donating to things that I care about. Um, however, in this time of stewardship here at the church, in this time of great need in our country and in our world, giving can sometimes feel like an overwhelming obligation. But what if we can approach giving with the same joy that we did as children? What if we can remember that much like love, giving is not a zero-sum game? When we take the time to interact with those that receive our gifts, giving returns to us a sense of purpose and fulfillment and awakens the love within us. So in this time of stewardship and this time of great struggle in the world and in our country, when you're considering your gifts to our church and to other communities of need, I ask you to give joyfully. <laughs>